podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Michael McMullen is back. Well, I haven't actually been anywhere, but last week uh, we gave a young up-and-comer Phil Yates a chance on the podcast. Um, and of course, you are joining us from Cork. Now, we're actually recording this uh, the day after Aaron Hill beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. So by the time it goes out... People will know who's won the European Masters. Obviously, we don't. Karen Wilson's my tip, but who knows? You will know. We don't know who's won it. But um, tell us the scenes in court this morning. Well, it's bunting out in the streets yeah. and, you know, they're planning the welcome home. No, not quite. But it, it, this result is sort of the product of a real shift, actually, a geographical shift there's been in snooker in this country in recent years because back in the day, any good player who emerged from the Republic of Ireland. They were nearly always from Dublin because that was such a hotbed of snooker back in the day. What's happened is that partly because of the soaring property prices in Dublin and a few other factors as well, there are very few clubs left in Dublin now, so nobody much is really emerging from there. Cork has become the new centre of snooker in the Republic of Ireland, and a few really good players have actually emerged, and they play together quite a bit. One of them stands head and shoulders above all the rest, and that's Aaron Hill, and he has just really lit things up now over here with this because the fact that he's beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan is such a landmark moment, actually, for snooker in the Republic of Ireland because, really, it's been almost 30 years since anyone emerged in the Republic who's gone on to become a genuine top player. That was Fergal O'Brien. We've had other guys. We've had Michael Judge. We've had Davy Morris. But they never became real top players. Aaron Hill is a long, long way from doing that yet. But the potential he's shown now, what an impact to make to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in basically a week or so beyond the first match of your first season as a professional is an unbelievable landmark, and it's hard to think of any kind of parallel. You think back to Martin Clark when he was a teenage rookie. In the first ranking event of his first season, he beat Dennis Taylor 5-0. But I don't think that even compares to what Aaron Hill has done. I like his attitude. I like the way he talks about things. I like his confidence. He has a table in his house, which I think is... You know, a big plus because you'd be surprised how few professional players have that. And as I say, he's got other good players in court to play against. Not at his level, but they're guys who play against each other quite a lot. And I think that's really sharpened him up. And we're all very excited now here in Cork about the prospects of uh, what Aaron Hill might want to achieve. And it's going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, like I say, as we record this, we don't know how he's going to do in this tournament. But I said on the commentary, you know, there's no bigger scalp you can take than Ronnie O'Sullivan. That would apply anyway. But the fact he's just become world champion again. Um, I was very impressed with him. He's a very exciting, exciting character. Clearly has self-belief. He went out there determined to take the game to Ronnie. It's amazing what can happen if you just apply a bit of pressure. Very, very good, I think. One thing I would say, though, is, you know, and he was asked about this in his interview. Um, obviously, Ronnie made the comments that he made very bluntly about sort of younger players and players down the rankings at the World Championship. And a lot of people are sort of saying almost that this 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 one match invalidates all that. I don't agree with that. You know, we can only tell we can only tell if there's a changing of the guard over really the next couple of years, and not just with Aaron, but with other young players as well. It's just one win, but it was a fantastic personal achievement. And the break he made in the last frame, I know he started with a fluke, but the, you know that's almost irrelevant when you consider the big pressure balls he was faced with. The pink to the middle was a big one. Just a very very impressive performance. Big news, like you say, it's been. Well received over there. And we'll see how he gets on. As I say, we don't know how he gets on in the rest of the tournament. 
uh, the next match he plays, um, which is bef- bef- we're recording this before he plays it, is out on table seven. It's a different kind of setup now. He's back in sort of anonymity against Matthew Stevens. But fair play to him. We need new, new stars, and he looks like he might be one. So well done to him. But we're going to leave the European Masters alone because obviously, you know, we don't know who's going to win it. We're recording this on the Friday morning. Our topic today on the podcast is. Well, it's a quite a broad topic. Forgotten matches is what we're calling it. We've talked before about the greatest matches of all time. We've talked about sort of matches, um, you know, that uh, are outside of the World Championship. This one is really matches that maybe have slipped under the radar, but have memories for us. They could be personal memories. Um, for example, one of them is one I attended as a spectator. Just matches that maybe people need to be reminded of again. Now, I'm aware we have a lot of, obviously, diehard snooker fans who listen to us and they may well say well we remember these matches fair enough fair enough I, I don't doubt that but there's a couple well two of mine were not televised so unless you're in the audience you wouldn't have seen them um so i, I think i'll as as york as cork is kind of you know running the world this morning i think i'll let you start yeah and very appropriately i'm actually going to start with a match where a player from the republic of ireland with a ranking in three figures beat the reigning world champion. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it just happened mm. last night. Mm. But this is back in 1994. It's funny how often Fergal O'Brien comes up in these conversations. Yeah. just shows yeah. you how long he's been around, actually. Um, but this was the Irish Masters, which, again, you know, people who weren't around at the time or didn't follow the game at the time couldn't grasp what a huge event the Irish Masters was. And what a big deal it was for Fergal O'Brien as a young Dubliner a couple of years into his pro career to be playing in it. Got through his first match played Stephen Hendry in the quarterfinals and played absolutely brilliantly. In the third frame, he made a 1-4-1 total clearance, which was the highest break in the history of the Irish Masters, which at that mm. stage was in its 17th year. He then went on to make another century in the next frame. He's leading now 4-0 against Stephen Hendry, the best player in the world at the time, uh, at the interval. And it was only first to five. Incredibly, Hendry then comes back out after the interval and equals the tournament record break that Fergal has just made with a 1-4-1 of his own. <laughs> he then won the next frame as well, looked as though he might close it back to 4-3, and suddenly Fergal's going to be having all kinds of nightmares, isn't he? Because I suppose memories of uh, Hendry's comeback against Mike Hallett in the Masters final and against Jimmy in the World final in the previous years were uh, still in the forefront of people's minds. But Fergal managed to uh, get a chance. Uh, he made a really good clearance to the pink to close out his 5-2 win. This was the world number 100 beating the world number one. It was just a, a massive story at the time, very similar to what we've just been talking about, and a huge landmark for Fergal O'Brien in his career. And it was a bit of a theme for Henry at that time because only a few years earlier, he'd, uh, sorry, a few weeks earlier, he'd played another local wild card, Ty Pitchett, in Thailand and had been beaten mm-hmm. by him as well. So he was having a few bad results around that time. Obviously, he turned it round because a few weeks later, he was world champion again. Uh, as for Fergal O'Brien, he then went into the semi-final, which was an extraordinary thing in a tournament of that standing for a player ranked 100th in the world. And uh, was actually beaten 6-4 by Alan McManus, but he put up a good show again. But I just remember that as uh, just a really good match. Uh, you know, a great moment for a young player who came through and who, who's still a very good player today. Tell me, tell me this, because Fergal obviously now he's he's associated with the sort of absolute, you know, you know, hardened veteran, you know, win at all costs kind of character, and obviously that that longest frame he played with Gilbert mm-hmm. has, has played into that a lot. What sort of player was he then? Would, would you say that he's always been like that, or was he a bit more sort of a flair player then? I don't think. 
Berger would ever have been described as a flair player, Dave. I think that, that would be a bit of a leap for anyone. But look, I told you what happened in that match, didn't I? I mean, you know, he made those back-to-back centuries. But he's always been capable of that. I mean, remember that fantastic performance he turned in in the UK a season or two ago and just a relentless scoring. And I remember him saying afterwards, you know, whatever happens now, I'd like to think people will look back on this match and say, you know, Fergal O'Brien could play a bit. We know what he's like. I mean, we know he's very capable of scoring very heavily um, and, and has always been able to mix it up in the tactical exchanges. I think he's become better at that side of the game as time has gone on. Most players do. But I think he's always been capable of the heavy scoring. And uh, certainly at that time, he was always steady, methodical. He was always that sort of player. But it was a big moment for him uh, some 26 years ago uh, when he beat Stephen Hendry in what was possibly the biggest upset there ever was in the history of that glorious event. And has anyone in that sort of span of time, so we're talking a quarter of a century, has anyone aged, has anyone aged less than Fergal? I saw him at the Championship League recently. And, I mean, he looks so well. I mean, they, they, you know, he's called the baby-faced assassin and all that. But I guess he's a non-drinker, which maybe <laughs> maybe that's a clue. But he's uh, he's someone who, I know he does his running and so on. He's someone who has sort of paid attention to that side, I guess, by looking after himself. And, and you know, what you say could never be described as a flair player. I think also could never be described as one of the sport's wild men. No, definitely not. And I remember talking to him about 20 years ago when he don't think he was even 30 yet. And he was telling me he made sure he got 10 hours sleep every night. And that's incredible, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, 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 it's no great mystery, is it? I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's, he's nearly 50 now. He still doesn't look much older than when he turned pro. I think the drinking's probably uh, a big thing because there aren't many teetotalers in the game. Um, but look, you know, he, he, he's the one who's, uh, who's still going and has got a two-year tour card now. So he's still going to be on the tour at 50. Early nights, no drinking, 10 hours sleep. There you go. Simple recipe. Having said that, though, I think Ken still looks great. And I think Ken would accept he is, he is a drinker where he likes to drink. So um, he likes a good well, time. Well, According to Ian Doyle, he certainly got plenty of sleep as well, though, back in the day. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed. Anyway, well, yeah, that's a, that's a nice one to start with. Now, I should make a confession here. So this is called, well, well let's start with the, the facts. Your memory is fantastic. I mean, you're known for that. Mine, mm. I would say, is just a normal memory, i.e. not great, not bad, just, you know, prob- probably a lot of sort of myths in there as well and misremembered things. It's called Forgotten Matches. Now, I can't actually remember that much about um, the circumstances of this match other than the fact that it was staged at Walsall Town Hall. Now, I grew up in Walsall in the West Midlands in England. And it was the Matchroom League. And obviously, you know, most tournaments in those days, we're talking 30 years ago, they had their fixed venues. You know, you had the Grand Prix at Reading, you had the UK at Preston, the Crucible, obviously, Wembley. So you wouldn't necessarily see professional snooker anywhere near where you lived. This was happening about a mile from where I lived. It was a Matchroom League match between Jimmy White and Neil Folds. Now, I've looked it up on Q-Tracker, and I remember it was four each for reasons I'll come to shortly. They actually played twice. They played in 1988 and 1990. And I think it was 1990 because I think by that point I'd already been to an actual tournament to watch. Um, And the reason I, I think that is because this was a world away from the sort of sanitized environment of televised tournaments where obviously because it's on television it's made to look nice you have the nice set you know even in those days it was still the back end of having flowers and it was all made to welcome in families and you know welcome in everybody this was the opposite this was non-televised so there was none of that sort of facade to, to keep up um and you know that area of the country you know it's a very working class area a lot of sort of snooker local snooker players people who played in clubs came along and the atmosphere i, I promise you was more like a football match there was 
was um, swearing, smoking, barracking. Um, you know, people got involved. It wasn't like you would get at the crucible. Um, and that made it very exciting when, you know, when you're young, you think, wow, this is so this is what snooker's like. Um, now, in my memory, and I may have this wrong, in my memory, I'd already been to the Crucible that year. Now, it may, this match may have come before that, but my memory is that I'd already been to actually see the other side of it, that, that sanitised version. But here's the thing. So I I kind of was aware of the Matchroom League, but because it wasn't on television, it wasn't one of those events that you really paid any attention to. And obviously, up to that point, I'd only ever seen knockout snooker. You know, someone won, someone lost. That's what made it interesting. Because this was eight frames, right? So it gets to four each, and it stops. I, I thought, oh wow, you know, I wonder who's going to win the decider, and it just stopped. And it was a bit of an anti- it was a bit of an anticlimax, even though in my mind I kind of appreciated that it was an eight frame match. That was it. We just went home, and there was no winner. And that's why I think sort of leagues ne- don't necessarily always work because you know you're so conditioned to winning and losing. It kind of you just wanted a deciding frame. Um, I don't remember anything really about the match at all, but I have looked it up, as I say. And, you know, there were a few breaks. So Jimmy Jimmy had like a 90-odd or 70-odd. Neil had three-off centuries. Um, Neil led 4-3. Jimmy won what looked like a pretty nondescript last frame. But I just wish there'd been, you know, one more frame to play. I had the opposite experience, actually, around the same time at a football match because Shamrock Rovers, one of the biggest clubs in Ireland, decided to start this thing called the Shamrock Challenge where they'd play a big match every year, uh, a friendly against a big club from another country. In the first year of it, they got Manchester City, and that included several of the Ireland players at the time. So that was a massive deal to have that. The following year, they had to downgrade a little. They played a team from the Netherlands called FC Utrecht, which wasn't quite so good. But my mate and I went along to the game, finished in the draw after 90 minutes. It was a friendly. Unbelievably, they decided to have a penalty shootout at the end. So it's kind of the opposite of your experience. Yeah. Interesting there that you talked about the swearing, the smoking and the barracking. Well, that would have prepared you very well for all your years in the press room. Very <laughs> much so, yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was an interesting experience. It was great to have snooker in our hometown. And actually, before the match started, there was like a one-frame challenge. Alison Fisher, um, I don't know whether she was part of a match with them, but obviously she was the top women's player very much. And I think, I think she played Lee Griffin in a one-frame sort of warm-up. Um, but uh, you know, again, there were sort of inappropriate things were said. It was it was a very kind of belt and braces experience. But you know, it, it, obviously, a lot of people who were there had come from snooker clubs where that was the normal way to behave. So it wasn't a bad thing. It was just how it was. But it was interesting, like going from that to a televised tournament where everything, as I say, is quite sanitised. It's just a very different experience. Um, I bet I guess it's a bit too late now for the decider, even though Jimmy and Neil, because I work with them both now. That's the strange thing on, on Eurosport. Maybe we could arrange a decider. I, I would, at the moment, I would fancy Jimmy because I don't think Neil's played for about 10 years. Um, anyway, so that's my next choice. So, uh, sorry, that's my first choice. So, number, number two from you. Yeah, um, I've gone for a final, actually. And it's a final you don't often hear very much about, because, which is a bit surprising because... It was between Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis, who at the time were you know, the two biggest names in snooker. And it was a tournament called the International Open. In fact, I think it was called the Sky Sports International Open. And it was the first event they'd done as a host broadcaster. They'd shown other tournaments. But this was a whole different thing, a whole new ball game actually, as, as uh, which I think was Sky's slogan for another sport in those days. And it was done in a, in a way that you might take for granted now, but you don't, it, it wasn't really common at the time. I think it was 32 players in the final stage, but whatever it was, they basically showed pretty much every session live. Now, I think they only had one sports channel in those days, so it wasn't not every session, but certainly all the afternoons were. 
And I mean, it gave a whole new meaning to the term comprehensive coverage, the way they did it. Mm -hmm. uh, you ended up with a final between Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis. Davis was actually leading 5-4 at the end of the first session. Now, the thing was, he'd been having a bit of a revival around that time, and it was coming up to the World Championship. And there was a feeling maybe he was going to win his seventh world title. Uh, and he's leading Hendry 5-4 after the first session of the final. You're thinking, well, this would be a real landmark if he could win this just before the Crucible. And Henry that night just played so, so well. He had two centuries, a string of big breaks. Davis only won one further frame. Henry ended up winning the match by 10 frames to six. And it really was actually one of the first times we saw that relentless, heavy scoring frame after frame from Henry in a really big match like that. It was obviously a portent of what was to follow at the Crucible when he just dominated the World Championship a few weeks later and won it for the third time. And for me, it was actually the start of what I think is probably still my favourite era in snooker, that kind of early to mid-90s period when he had so many of the game's all-time greats playing at or around their best, so many exciting new players like O'Sullivan, Higgins, Williams, McManus and others all coming through. That, for me, was kind of the start of that, and I always associate that era with those events where Sky were the host broadcaster because they were really changing the way snooker was done, actually, at that time. And that was the beginning of that, really. So it's a final you don't hear referred to very much, but I certainly remember it as, uh, as a great match, a fitting uh, final um, between two such uh, big names in the game. And as I say, the start of what for me was uh, a wonderful, wonderful era for snooker. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't remember it at all for the very simple reason I never saw it because we didn't have Sky. We didn't have Sky. So a lot of those matches uh, in the 90s, Actually, they sort of turn up now and again on YouTube, don't they? Um, I mean, the, the Bond Higgins uh, British Open final, which I guess is much more uh, well remembered, that that turn up put on YouTube recently. Um, so yeah, I, I I have no memories of it, but certainly you, you're right about the. I mean, when I started working in snooker, you know, Sky were very very much still involved, and they were incredible innovators. They were the first to do the sort of digital, you know, choose your own match stuff. Um, it's a shame in a way that I think they felt that they were getting the sort of slim pickings of the circuit a little bit. And also, they, they always had the sort of traditional pre-crucible tournament, and there was a sort of feeling that everyone was already, you know, in Sheffield rather than concentrating on that one. But yeah, they uh, they sort of plugged the gap. I guess when ITV um, sort of bowed yeah. out in the, in the early nineties, Sky came in, and and of course launched Phil Yates on an unsuspecting public. Yeah, I think uh, well, Phil was definitely the main commentator on that uh, tournament. I have to say, I, I thought he was an awful lot older at the time than he actually was. <laughs> he certainly sounded that. And for some reason, I always pictured him because I'd never met him at that stage and never even seen him on TV. For some reason, I remember listening that whole week to his commentary and imagining that he had a beard for some reason, <laughs> and, and and also that he was sitting in the booth wearing a shirt and tie. I'm not sure I've ever seen Phil no, wear a shirt no. and tie in in all the years I've known him since then. But they had all sorts of different people presenting tournaments on Sky in those days. That one was presented by a guy called Gary Norman, who was more of a boxing presenter. I, I don't know what he's doing now. But he interviewed the two players in his studio at the end of the final. And listen, you could, you, we know how much Steve hated losing at that time. He'd just been beaten by Stephen Henry when he'd had a chance to, to, uh, to beat him in a big final. So he must have been massively disappointed. But I remember him still taking the time at the end of the interview to compliment Gary Norman on Sky's coverage. It shows you what an impact uh, it, it had made. They were also, I think, the first people to introduce the walk-on music. People talked about that about 10 years ago when it became a regular thing, as if it was some groundbreaking innovation. But Sky had actually been doing it many years earlier. Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually stopped now. Um, but there was a, for a long, long time, you would get both players interviewed in the studio after a final, which... Always seemed a little uncomfortable. Actually, and we're veering off the point a little bit here, but I was recently, someone uploaded um, 
as much of the 85 UK final, Willie Thorne, Steve Davis, as was broadcast, because mm. it, was, it wasn't all broadcast uh, live. But um, there's two things to say about that. One is Willie played so well to take the lead. I mean, he really yeah. did. You know, he was playing as well as people play today in big matches. And then, of course, the Miss Blue and, and John Spencer at the time sort of identified that, you know, that's a big moment. But then at the end, so they, the last, last session wasn't live. So it was shown whenever it was shown. And then they cut to David Vine in the studio. And there's Willie and Steve being interviewed. And they do the interview, and it's it's okay. You know, Willie was okay with it. And then they cut to the most overblown musical finish you've ever seen. They they went to you can check this out. It's on YouTube. They went to a montage um, to the song "That's What Friends Are For," which is quite a sort of saccharine song anyway. Mm. And it's big musical number over the credits, and it seemed the most inappropriate. <laughs> well, I know it's the eighties, so you can cut them some slack. Just seemed a very odd way to end a major sporting event. You know, just strange. But anyway, that we're, we're like I say, we are veering very much off the subject um so let's go to my let's go to my second choice this is also a final now of course it's important to say that before eurosport started their blanket coverage of the circuit which was about 2003 i think is when they started showing every tournament they showed odd tournaments here and there but before then tournaments you mentioned the irish masters already but tournaments like the events in china you didn't see them live on television you might see the odd hour-long highlights of the final, maybe we'll turn up in the middle of the night somewhere. But basically, these tournaments existed only on CFAX, as far as the British public were concerned. So it's 2002. It's the China Open in Shanghai. The final was between Mark Williams and Anthony Hamilton. Now, Mark had won the Thailand Masters the week before. So he was really at the peak of his powers then. You know, he'd become very much a top player, already world champion, UK champion and all the rest of it, Masters champion. He was someone who was a top player. Anthony was also a top player, hadn't won a title, and people were sort of asking, you know, when's it going to happen? And it looked like it would happen there in Shanghai. Uh, he led 8-5 in the final, and he lost 9-8. And the reason I remember it is because of the way he spoke afterwards. There were no excuses the only thing he blamed was his own deficiencies, which, you know, you don't often hear, actually, um, you know, people will say, you know, oh, if only this had happened, if only that had happened. He blamed himself entirely in quite a brutal way. It was quite hard to listen to. He said, I bottled it. I wasn't good enough. I've actually looked back at the match sheet and the, the last few frames weren't close. It's not like he was getting chances on the colours to win. It just seemed that he was in a couple of times early on in the last couple of frames and just couldn't do anything. And Mark, you know, by then was used to winning. Um, but that's why I remember it for Anthony's kind of honesty and... I, what it proved, I think, was that it's, you know, and we know this, obviously, but it kind of underlined it is it's not just about how good you are on the table. It's about how strong you are mentally. It's worth remembering it took him another 15 years to win a tournament, German Masters 2017. Yeah. And eventually did it. And, that, and one of the reasons I was so happy for him was that I remembered being there. And, of course, it's a bit awkward as well when you're overseas. You can't just drive home. You know, everyone's on the same flight back home with each other. You're in the same hotel even probably the same shuttle bus we all had to get on. It's, it's you know, and you feel so bad for someone like that. Had Mark lost it from 8-5 up, it wouldn't have felt anything like the same because he was already a world champion. He won tournaments. He was going to win more. There was a feeling, I think, with Anstey, and of course he'd lost to Fergal already in the British Open final as well, that there's Fergal again getting a mention, that, yeah. that you know, it might never happen for him um, for the reasons that he's identified. Thankfully it did, but it, it, stuck with, it stuck with me. The match itself, I remember very little about the actual play other than... I think he was 5-3 up after the first session. I've looked it up. He was 6-3-8-5. Must have obviously played well early on. But when the pressure came on, as he admitted, he felt it. And, yeah, it was kind of, on a human level, it was quite difficult. But thankfully, as I say, in the end, 
things worked out. He won a tournament, and, and actually, the one he won in Berlin, his parents were there in the crowd and everything. So it, it all worked out okay. But it took 15 years for that to happen. You mentioned there actually that it was part of back-to-back ranking events that Williams won uh, in the Far East around that time. And he was uh, still ranked number one in the world, uh, but he was going to the Crucible not in the best of form, actually, prior to those events. And I think those two tournaments marked him out as someone who could potentially win the World Championship for a second time. I'm fairly sure, wasn't it Anthony Hamilton who then beat him in the second round, only a few weeks after that final in China? Yeah, well, that was the kind of... um... Yeah, that was the kind of twist in the tail, but obviously that wasn't a final. I mean, it was still a big yeah. match, but it didn't give him a trophy. No. Yeah, I mean, Hamilton was involved in so many memorable <laughs> matches around that time. I think it was at the UK in 97. I think he was maybe 8-5 up against Hendry when he used to be best of 17 all the way and just couldn't get over the line on that. I mean, you could do a whole podcast about Anthony Hamilton's career. Well, I suppose you did do in a whole podcast about his career <laughs> yeah. when you had him yeah. on. But we could do one ourselves, couldn't we? Looking back on all the stories uh, that he's been involved in and the matches over the years. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that was a great one. As you say, we didn't used to see those finals a lot. Sky would occasionally show maybe the final of Dubai or something like that a few days after it had been played. But uh, I, I certainly never saw that match either. But again, my memories of a lot of those early tournaments in places like China and Thailand and even the European Open as well, when that started being played, again, or trying to follow the scores on CFAX. And I mean, that's far more nerve-wracking if you've got any sort of emotional investment in the match than actually watching the match itself on television. Definitely. The other thing I remember about that, that event was, I, th- I think I'd been to Shanghai before, but maybe not been out that much to see the place. And me and Phil, the day before it started, we were taken around Shanghai by, you might remember Rupert Attlee. Um and he was Clement Attlee's, I think, great nephew or something. He was related to Clement Attlee, the former Labour Prime Minister. And he knew everywhere. He was taking us all the, the sites. Turned out he was supposed to be actually rigging the venue that day. But anyway, that's uh, we'll maybe leave that to one side. OK, so we've got one more choice each. Uh, over to you. Right. Well, this one, you talked about personal choices there. And there's an element of that in this one. And would you believe, on the day we're recording this, it is 33 years to the day since this match was played. It was even the same so, day of the week. Let me see if I can, because we, we haven't talked about this, so let me see if I can guess. So it's 1987, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so where are we? Late September, so it's probably going to be the international mm-hmm. at Stoke, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Um, was it the, f- uh, uh, well, I'm trying to think. Davis, I think, hang on, 1987. Who yeah. won that? Steve Davis, I guess. Steve must have won won, but it's not the final, right. so I don't okay. think we'll get this match, no. actually. No. Well, so it was... Someone wrote in, I think it was about two weeks ago, wasn't it, talking about the Goya Matchroom Trophy of 1985. Mm. Now, that then became the BCE in 86, and then that, in turn, became the Fidelity Unit Trust International in 1987. Uh, It was the first ranking event of the season, and it was also the first tournament of a new five-year deal for ITV. Under the terms of that deal, they were now doing two-table coverage, which they'd never done before. Well, just to, just just to jump in, there's a picture actually someone put up recently on Twitter of I think it's Dickie Davis. You can tell yeah. it's the 80s. Dickie Davis, Rex, and I think Neil Folds, basically wow. in the in the 80s way, just throwing money up in the air to announce the deal, just carelessly. <laughs> just it's it's you know it's the 80s. It was the you know Thatcherism. Just throw money in the air and celebrate. Anyway, go on. 
well, Neil actually ends up coming into this story in a minute because he, <laughs> he played in the match. It's funny, he, he's a bit like Fergal, actually. No matter what we talk about, we always seem to end up coming yeah. back to Neil as well. So, look, it was a very big deal because, you know, BBC had obviously done the two-table coverage uh, for many years. ITV were now doing that as well. So that showed you just how big snooker was on British television at the time. Also, the fact you had a company like Fidelity Unit Trusts, mm. just a massive financial company, uh, you know, this was at a time when, you know, uh, financial uh, organizations, you know, were still regarded as bastions of probity, as it were, and, you know, <laughs> respectable organizations. So it was a big deal to have a sponsor like that. And it was the start of the season. It was also my first full season of really being interested in snooker. I'd gradually become more interested. And I think it was probably in the middle of the 86, 87 season that I'd really got into it. Then, of course, at that time, you had the World Championship. And then you didn't really see anything for about four or five months after that. So I remember just being really excited about the fact that this tournament was starting and there was going to be two table coverage and the ITV events in those days went on for 10 days. So it was a really big thing. And I remember I was still at school at the time. I was only 11 years old. And I remember this. I mean, how sad is this telling this story about being 11 years old? I remember racing home from school to try to catch some of the first match of the TV stage between Dave Gilbert and Cliff Wilson. And, now, this, now, should, we should say this is not the current Dave Gilbert. No, this is another. Yeah. No, yeah. This, this, this is um, a guy from London who actually had a steel plate in his arm. But uh, he, beat, uh, he beat Cliff Wilson in that match. Uh, I always remember that one, just thinking this, is, this was such a big occasion, this match, because it was the start of my first full season following the game. And as if that wasn't good enough, I then had this massive treat to look forward to that night. Stephen Hendry playing Neil Folds, who was the defending mm. champion. Henry, of course, wasn't in the top 16 yet, but it was clear that he was destined for great things. There'd been a lot of sort of smaller exhibition events over the summer period. He'd been in the final of one in Hong Kong. He'd won the tournament in Australia. So Henry was going into the new season with huge expectation around him. And of course, Neil was now number three in the world after being, you know, such a good player the previous season. So I remember, I remember so clearly sitting down on that Friday night to watch it and Dickie Davies coming on presenting it and just thinking, this is brilliant. This is the start of this tournament. It's the start of a whole new season. So much is going to happen. And we've got two of the most exciting prospects in the game playing each other. Wasn't a particularly memorable match. Neil didn't play all that well. Neither did Stephen, actually. But he won the match by five frames to two. And it was actually quite a big moment for him because it was the first time he'd beaten a top four player in a ranking event. That hadn't happened prior to that. He had some good wins. He'd beaten Willie Thorne at the Crucible the previous season, but Willie was number eight at the time. So it was a big, big thing. He went on to reach the semi-finals, Hendry, uh, and then, of course, a few weeks later became, at the time, the youngest ever ranking event winner when he won the Grand Prix. So for me, it's just a bit of a snapshot of that era, the expanded ITV coverage, the big-name sponsor, the very early days of the Stephen Hendry era, and just that personal memory of the huge excitement I had 33 years ago at the start of the season. And I sort of felt, yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot of this, not only over the next eight or nine months watching these matches as they unfold, but over the decades to come. And sure enough, that's exactly how it's turned out. There we are. You see, young girls in the 1960s chased after the Beatles, ran down the street after the Beatles. You ran home to watch Dave Gilbert against Cliff Wilson. Well, Who won here's, that? The thing. Yeah. here's the thing. I actually have both of those matches on DVD now because wow. um, I can't believe I've forgotten his surname. Roger, Roger Lee, that's it, of mm. course. The great historian <laughs> of the game. Yeah. Who, uh, you, you were just talking about my great memory there. Yeah. The, um, but as we know, he has a treasure trove of, of matches in his house. And it turned out he had both Dave Gilbert versus Cliff Wilson and Stephen Hendry versus Neil Folds uh, in his house. And I got him to make copies. In fact, 
I think now, having said all this, I'm going to have to sit down tonight and have a look at those. Absolutely. That sounds like a, a good night in to me. Uh, but you mentioned Roger Lee because um, Peter Lyons, uh, he made a one for one at the Crucible on his only appearance. Yeah. And, he, and he has no copy of it. He basically wanted to show his son, Oliver, look, I, I, you know, I was at the Crucible. I made this century. Um, and he was asking me because he asked the BBC and they didn't have a copy. And he said, you know, who do you think would have it? So I, I, I managed to get in contact with Roger, not expecting him to have it because it is, you know, it's an obscure thing to have. And sure enough, he came back. He said, "No, I'm afraid I don't have that." But he said, "I do have the first frame of the match." So he's got, wow. he's got, he's got some of it, which which is incredible. He is uh, amazing. But don't, don't leave us in suspense. Who won between Gilbert and Wilson? Gilbert won. Gilbert okay. won actually. Yeah, yeah he, he got through, and um, I think that was about as good as it got from in his career. He, he'd been a very good amateur actually. Uh, he was highly rated. But then I think that steel plate. I think he had some sort of relatively minor car accident. Yeah, and uh, that was why he needed that. And I think that held him back a bit. So. Uh, he was one of those players. You had a lot of them around that time. Guys like Stefan Masrosas as well would fall into that category, who were really good amateurs, but you know only made a fleeting impact on, on the professional game. Well, this is why the other Dave Gilbert, the one who's now a top player, for a time he was known as David Brown Gilbert, and the re- the reason for that was the reason for that was um, because the other Dave Gilbert is still on the system. They said to the current Dave. Um, Give us your middle name just to so on our system you're because checks you know we know with mark williams when he won the masters he went to another yeah. mark williams check so to stop that happening and he's and dave doesn't have a middle name so he, he said oh i don't have one they said well just put something down so i think there was a guy called tony brown who used to drive him around so he just said oh i'll just put brown never expecting it to then start appearing on scoreboards that was never the intention at all um anyway that's uh, we, we are veering very much off the, off we, the are, we are veering and, and as we've gone slightly off topic yeah. i do have to say this just as an interesting little aside to it um, many years later, well, I suppose only about 13 years later, actually, uh, I was working in a radio station in Ireland where I worked for a number of years. And we were in two different buildings and th- we moved to a new building. I think it was about 2008. And it was such a big place that it wasn't just the radio station in the building. There were three or four other companies operating as well. One of them, unbelievably, was Fidelity, who sponsored <laughs> that tournament. So incredible to think that I then ended up working in, uh, in the same building as what I assume was their, their Irish headquarters. Yeah, I know. I remember. I had no idea what they were. Like what, Fidelity Unit Trust. Uh, when you're young, you no concept of what that what that really means. I'm not sure anyone really knows now. But anyway, um, my final choice. Okay, it's another final. This was a rare untelevised ranking final. Uh, 2003 European Open yeah. in Torquay, and the match was between Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry. It, there was no internet streaming or anything like that. It wasn't televised, so unless you're in the audience, you wouldn't have seen it. And if you did see it, you would have seen a great match. I mean, Stephen Hendry was still a top player. He, their rivalry was was competitive at the time. Ronnie obviously had come through and was very much a top player at the time. The match started with a 140 from Roddy, um, which kind of set the tone. Hendry had two centuries in the match. Ronnie had three. And it's a great shame it wasn't seen, but it kind of... Even though it was a great match, it kind of also reflected the sort of nadir that Snooker was facing because it was untelevised, it was unsponsored. He's basically only on to fulfil a contract. They had to, I think, put eight ranking events on as part of these these chances of chances had come in and had the contract off World Snooker to put, to put tournaments on. They had to put tournaments on. So the Irish Masters became a ranking event, which basically ruined the unique nature of it. And this European Open, you know, I mean, Torquay... He's still in Europe now, but it wasn't exactly, you know, a sort of... It was played in a hotel. It wasn't exactly a sort of top venue. 
Um, but the match itself was brilliant. And that's all, that's kind of what's always rescued snooker from these political problems. The actual game itself and the people who play it at the top level have continually rescued it. And that's why I always defend Ronnie ultimately, because, you know, he uh, probably more than anyone at the time was keeping it going. Um, but what I remember about it was not so much the match, but the sort of week there, obviously Ronnie won the world championship recently. And he said, before it started, he said, I think I'll enjoy this more because there's less pressure on me. There's less people wanting his time. Um, and in this event, of course, because there's no TV people there, he wasn't, and there's only a few journalists who kind of be new anyway. There wasn't the sort of pressure, like people wanting a piece of him all the time. And talk is quite a nice place, place to be as well. It's down by the sea. You know, you can sort of relax away from the matches and when he's in that mode, when he's relaxed like that, he tends to play well and also tends to be very pleasant company. Um, I thought he was in a very good place, sort of personally. I was convinced he was going to win the World Championship because he lost first round, ultimately, mm. to Marco Fu. But he won the Irish Masters as well around that time. So he was very much, you know, um, sort of on fire at that point. What I also remember was, so as I say, unless you're in the audience, you wouldn't have seen it. There were two people who were in the audience who weren't impressed, Tony Knowles and Ray Reardon. Now, you you would think those two, you know, they know about snooker and I have a lot of respect for them, but they didn't like the fact it was so attacking. I mean, Knowles was actually quoted in... <laughs> Knowles, this is true. You can look it up. Tony Knowles was quoted in the local paper as complaining that there was no, there was no craft, as he put it. He said, oh, yeah, you said, you know, Snook's all about manipulating the balls and, you know, and basically what he's saying is let's have 20 minutes of safety before anything happens. Well, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Andrew don't play that way. You know, it's all about getting in, making big breaks and playing that, you know, that brilliant attacking snooker that's moved the game on from the, the Knowles and Reardon era. Of course, the irony is then pretty soon after that, Ray Reardon actually started working with, with, yeah. with Ronnie, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Certainly didn't curb his attacking game, but did, I guess, instill a sort of, more discipline into his game, you could say. But yeah, it was a great week actually, and um, it's interesting when there's no TV people running around, how relaxed everybody is, because there's always that attention, I think, on snooker when it's on the TV, and you feel it backstage. There's always lots of people sort of wearing headsets and running around trying to do stuff, putting the production together. Very importantly, to provide the product for the public. But without that, you're just playing snooker, um, albeit still for you know proper prize money and for a ranking title, and. Yeah, they both brought their A game, and I think they, they then played in the British Open final later in the year after Henry's queue. He had to change queues because it got broken. But then after that, really, the rivalry tailed away a little bit because Henry did start to decline. Um, and so it was one of the sort of last stands of their rivalry, I suppose. I love the idea of Tony Knowles and Ray Reardon as the sort of Waldorf and Statler. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sitting in the crowd like that, which which is appropriate because, as you alluded to there, you know, the game was being run by a lot of Muppets at the time. And... Um, <laughs> You know, that they were inviting ridicule, you have to say, in all seriousness. I mean, you know, at a time when they were being criticised for shambolic management and the way they were running things, they decide, OK, let's have a tournament yeah. at a hotel in Torquay. No, I mean, yeah. you're just asking to be ridiculed there. But yeah. I wasn't at that tournament, um, but I, I do remember it very, very well. And I was actually out that night. Uh, this was an era when there were no smartphones. In fact, even if there had been smartphones, I'm not sure it would have made any difference because I don't even know if you could get live scoring online in those days. Mm. I'm not sure that had entirely started yet. But I do remember coming in and, and looking again on CFAX, as we alluded to earlier, and just saw the brakes that had been powered in. And I had a few drinks that evening. I was wondering, was I imagining this? But <laughs> it just set things up really well, actually, for that Irish Masters that followed then after that, where there was a great standard as well. And as you say, I was won it in a really good final against John Higgins. Obviously, I was at that, and I remember that being a really good week. But, uh, yeah, such a shame it wasn't on television, as you're saying. I think the audience was really small. I think someone said there were only about 300 seats in the arena, so yeah, it was very yeah. special to have 
to have seen that at all. Not that Ray and Tony appreciated it. No, no, it's the reason I brought it up. Really, it's not a match anyone would ever talk about unless you know you were there. And even then, you know, maybe it's kind of been lost in the midst of time. But we talk about Ronnie, of course, now broken the ranking event record thirty-seven. Um, that would be one of the least remembered of the thirty-seven, I guess. It may may be the only televised, sorry, the only non-televised ranking event he's ever won. I'm sure it is. Um, I remember that because we were in the sort of press room. And they, the reason I saw the match is because someone hooked up a sort of rudimentary webcam at a sort of strange angle. And we watched it, you know, with Ivan, the press officer, and, and so on, weren't in the actual arena. So it was all a little bit, you know, we talk about behind closed doors now. Of course, there was an audience, so it wasn't strictly behind closed doors, but it was kind of, it was a very different tournament to the ones we're used to, where there's always a lot of people around. And, and as I say, when the, when TV are in town, you know, you, 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 always, you always notice their presence, put it that way. Um, yeah. And I just remember Ronnie Ronnie being in a very good place, and that's why I thought he might do it at the Crucible because he just seemed, you know. But of course, once you get to the Crucible, none of that applies. It is teaming with people who want a piece of you, and all that pressure comes back on. Yeah, when you say he was in a very good place, you're not necessarily referring to Torquay itself. You mean more in a mental listen, sense? No, listen, Torquay. I mean, Fulton yeah. Towers obviously has, has given it a bad rap, but a, a lovely place, particularly that time of year, sort of spring. I think the world qualifiers are on as well directly afterwards. They were, so yeah. We were yeah. there for a, we were there for a while. Uh, nothing wrong with the with the venue, but obviously, as I say at the time, it, the tournament only existed just to fulfil a contract. When you talk actually about non-televised finals, you're just going to be thinking there about some of the other ones. What an of course, his first mm. ranking title that was on televised. The Irish Open in 1998 <laughs> was a really good event that Mark Williams won. Uh, that was on televised as well. But a match that you referred to, we we it's all coming full circle now as we, as we reach the end of this because you were talking earlier about the Aaron Hill match that you commentated on last night as mm. we talk about this. You referred in that commentary to Ray Reardon becoming being the oldest ever yeah. ranking event winner that Ronnie O'Sullivan may very well break in about five years' time. That was untelevised as well uh, when he when he broke that record back in 1982, winning the professional players' tournament, beating Jimmy White. That wasn't on television either. So a few quite historic uh, tournaments in snooker history have uh, have gone unfilmed, as it were. Yeah, and with the advent of Matchroom Live, um, it seems. I mean, forever's a long time. I'm talking about the the, the near future. Very unlikely there'll be a tournament in the near future that's not seen on a screen somewhere. Mm. Um, so they are rare, but, you know, they all count the same. Anyway, I think we've, we've spoken for long enough about this, but I'd be very interested to hear other people's sort of below-the-radar matches. Maybe you were at them. Maybe they hold special memories for you. Maybe you ran home from school to see them. Whatever it is, do let us know, and we'll uh, go through them in a future podcast. You can email us. At snooker scene uh, podcast at mail.com. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com. We did have, um, I'll see if I can find it. We did have a review actually. And this, as I say, does um, help people to find us uh, on certainly Apple Podcasts. I don't understand all the other sites that people get them from, but I know there are others. What, let me just find this because you're mentioned in it. Uh, here we go. St. Dino. <laughs> uh, he says, very entertaining listen, talking about all things snooker, quips from Michael, and all in all, a very good listen. Long may, long may this podcast continue and prosper. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, I, I echo those sentiments. You know I'm only doing this as a platform to start a comedy career. Funny enough, I've not had any offers yet, but, yeah. No, well, it's, yeah, it's like Bob Munkass said, isn't it? You know, people laughed when I said I'd be a comedian. <laughs> they're, not, they're not laughing now. Anyway, on, on that, on that uh, stolen joke,
Thank you for listening, and uh, we will return very soon with more from the Snooker Scene Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.